Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It's Friday morning. It is about 9.40, and I have already had my first nap of the day because I was up a little before 5. And um, so I'm a little fuzzy-headed. Chris Starwalt makes fun of me for saying I'm tired too much, so I'm not going to say I'm tired. I'm going to say I was tired, and then I took a nap, and, and here I am now. Um, I did catch in the 6 a.m. hour, um, a kind of over the top tirade from Joe Scarborough and morning Joe. I mean, this is going to be a problem about doing these friggin' solo remnants in the morning is that I tend to have in my head what I saw on the TV or heard on NPR in the morning. And, you know, those are the two things I listen to a lot or watch a lot in the in the early morning and um and i don't think anybody wants to tune into a podcast that is a um friday morning reaction to morning joe and npr but we are where we are and um anyway so it got my head started on you know so his rant which i will say on the merits i agree with entirely um was all about how like you know this florida this florida this Arizona recount stuff and this audit stuff is embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the country. It's embarrassing for the Republican Party. Um, it is in a fundamental way, as he said, with veins semi-bulging out of his neck, um, un-American and anti-democratic at a really fundamental level. Um, I'm sure that most of the people who are doing it don't feel like it's anti-American or unpatriotic. Um, but you know, the response to that is they're wrong. Um, you know, I mean, this is one of these things that people tend to like have trouble with, with all sorts of historical forces. Very few movements since the dawn of time have said, okay, we're going to be the bad guys. Um, we're going to go down in history as the villains. That's, that'll be fun. Um, and you know, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I've brought this up before about like, I think how it's even funny that that self-declared Satanists say that they, um, you know, that Satanism is misunderstood and it's not really about being evil. It's about some other gobbledygook. You know, if, if even Satanists, Satanists can't embrace, you know, being evil, then, you know, what's the point? You know, most Nazis, <laughs> like the vast majority of Nazis didn't think that they were the bad guys. doesn't mean they weren't bad guys. But, um, 
there's this tendency among human beings to rationalize their positions as, as they must be the good guys, which is one of the reasons why I actually admire outfits and organizations every now and then that just sort of embrace being the bad guys. Um, like that, uh, dark side, uh, hacking group, uh, that took out the colonial pipeline, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I loved their statement where they said, Hey, look, we're not about politics. We're just in this to make money. Um, and there's just, there's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a little sort of, you know, Ron Burgundy yelling, talking to Baxter about eating the cheese thing again. You know, I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. I mean, when people own the fact that they're the bad guys, um, it's just, it makes you think that maybe there is a, a little more sort of comic book, James Bond movie narrative out there and just the honesty is refreshing. Um, anyway, uh, but I agree. Anyway, so I agree with Scarborough that, you know, the, the entire stop the steel movement, which is now spreading to these other States and, um, is, is embarrassing. It's wrong. It's malevolent. It is, uh, it is undemocratic. Um, and, and Scarborough talks about how it reflects a deep and abiding, um, lack of faith and belief in the constitution. And then he gets into some trolling stuff about America, love it or leave it. These are the kind of people who used to say that about the left. And now the way they describe America, you would think they should leave and whatever. I mean, I think it got a little crazy, but, um, and look, again, I agree with all that. But I think this is just a good little case study about how isolated I feel. And I think a lot of the people who see the world the way I do feel, um, and I'm going to circle back to this again later, I think, if I can actually stick to the plan that's in my head. Um, I find it outrageous. I mean, the bamboo thing and um, hiring this BS firm that has doesn't know anything about election security and is basically was hired because the head of it um, is a stop the steal conspiracy theorist, uh, these cyber ninja people and all that. Um, it's just appalling, and and I agree with all that. But the argument that Scarborough is making about you know if you don't have faith in the Constitution, um, you're not patriotic or you're anti-American or whatever. Um, is fine as far as it goes, I guess. I mean, again, there's some hy hyperbole in there, um, and a lack of understanding that some of these people who are, you know, dutifully following this stuff, um, and believing Trump are, are being duped, right? They're not trying to be villains. They're just wrong. Um, but put all that aside, um, I feel like one of the things that holds me back these days is my ability to get angry at one side or the other is that I just don't see that much difference on specific issues about these sides, at least not in terms of some of these arguments. Yeah. Yes. Tax policy. Sure. Um, uh, you know, abortion stuff. Sure. You know, there's, there are some issues where there are clear differences between the parties and I agree in probably nine out of 10 of them with the, with the Republican parties, depending on the specifics. But when it comes to these kinds of meta angry fights about 
um, this kind of stuff, my head immediately goes towards, and I hate to say this a little bit towards, you know, sort of essentially a whataboutism kind of argument. And, um, it's very difficult for me to listen to liberals on MSNBC and these other places talk about their deep seated and abiding love for the constitution when all it will take is a slightly different fact pattern in the news for them to talk about how we need to have a living constitution that changes its meaning and um, with every generation and how judges need to take things into account other than the, the text or the meaning of the words, but have to take into account the changing values and mores of the American people with their eye towards bending the arc of justice or the arc of the moral arc of the universe towards justice and yada, yada, yada. Um, or they talk about court packing or they talk about, um, you know, you know, I, I heard all this stuff this morning about the Madisonian structure of checks and balances you know, and, and heads nod and Claire McCaskill is all in. Yes, these are wonderful talking points used against Republicans. And they are on the merits, pretty good talking points to use against Republicans. But and I don't think this is necessarily true of Scarborough, but it's certainly true of the other of the liberals on the panel and uh, of the liberals who are watching the uh, watching the show. All you have to do is change the circumstances to talk about the Electoral College or talk about uh, the un, quote unquote undemocratic nature of the Senate. And then all of a sudden, or I've got gun control, you know, a lot of these things. And all of a sudden the, this cool, sophisticated thing to say is, you know, who, you know, the, the founding fathers couldn't imagine jet planes or lasers or computers. And we don't have to be bound up by their understanding of things. Um, it's also situational and nearest weapon to hand, uh, that it makes it just really difficult for me to get, you know, I used to have this grand wellspring of of ammo where um i really thought at least you know the people i wanted to align with on my side i thought just always had the right and better answers to most of these kinds of questions and i still tend to believe that when it comes to sort of the intellectual side of things but when it comes to the political side of things it's just all very depressing because i've lost faith and and admiration for so many of the the people who you know will often make the same arguments I will make when it's in their interest, but then abandon them when it seems not to be. And so like take this, this thing with Chris Cuomo, where he apparently was, you know, he's a CNN anchor and he apparently was in on strategy sessions with his brother, the governor of New York about how to deal with the sexual harassment stuff and how to craft a political slash media strategy to push back on it. And, um, I think it's gross and he deserves criticism. I, if I were running CNN, I'd probably pull him off the air, maybe not permanently, but for a while just to send that message. Um, I think that kind of, you know, he beclowned himself when Andrew Cuomo was popular. He would have him, Chris Cuomo, his brother would have him on CNN all the time. And they would do this cute act about who mom loved best and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and he would ask Andrew, Andrew, you know, how hard is it for you to cope with being so right about so many things in the age of Trump? And, and you know, it's like two cats licking each other. It was gross and it was inappropriate. And a lot of people on the right said so, and including me. And I think it was gross and inappropriate. And then all of a sudden when Andrew Cuomo gets into trouble because of the sexual harassment stuff and, um, and of course, all the grotesque lying about 
and 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 data fudging about the pandemic, uh, all of a sudden Chris Cuomo says it would be inappropriate for him to do those kinds of interviews or to talk about the political problems that his brother is having. And this, you know, that sort of, it's great when it's, when it's, uh, free publicity and, 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 you know, pandering to the Cuomosexuals and all that nonsense. But the second, uh, Andrew Cuomo's in trouble, then all of a sudden it becomes clear that this is inappropriate. And I think if, if, if responsible people at CNN, um, and executives who had the courage and the ability to stand up to their on-air talent had any guts whatsoever, they would have foreseen that this could happen and said, you know, look, we have policies against this kind of thing because what happens if, if, if Andrew Cuomo's fortunes go south, um, what are you going to do then? And so best not to do this at all. But since everybody is in this 15 minute ratings chase thing, uh, um, you know, where they look at the ratings every 15 minute interval intervals, uh, that kind of long-term, you know, integrity and, and foresight, uh, just seems in really short supply. So I think all, and so now it turns out that Chris Cuomo was, you know, in on these meetings and helping strategize, whatever. Um, I think when I, now that I think about it a little bit, it's a little less gross once he announced that he could no longer cover, um, Cuomo, his brother himself, but it's still just wildly inappropriate. And if he felt it was necessary to do that, he should have taken a leave of absence or something. But while I'm perfectly happy to rant and rave about that, I, you know, I, I can't help but remember how many stories there were about how Donald Trump put Lou Dobbs on speaker for strategy meetings um, or how many stories were out there about how, you know, uh, Sean Hannity or Tucker or Laura or in Laura spoke at the friggin Republican convention. Um, uh, you know, how many of these people wanted to be in his inner circle, how many of them went down to Mar-a-Lago, how many of them claimed to be Trump whisperers and all of that. Um, and I absolutely agree that there's an important distinction to be made between news and opinion people. Um, at least all of those primetime opinion people at Fox are opinion people. The problem is, is that that distinction I've come to realize is just lost on a great number of viewers it's it's always lost on critics of the other networks and uh, and i actually think that that distinction is even more lost at cnn and msnbc than it is at fox and i think it's in bad shape at fox but it's essentially non-existent at cnn there are a handful of anchors i think jake tapper is one you can have your problems with them you can have your disagreements and say he's more biased than he should be and all of that kind of stuff he, he can defend himself but i think jake tapper tries sincerely to be a, you know, a news guy. Um, but I watch the, I mean, I've talked about this before, you know, I, I, to the extent I watch any of those shows, I don't see very many, certainly not in primetime at, at CNN, any people who maintain a distinction between being news people and opinion people. And I, I'm literally a loss to find a single anchor, um, of any show at MSNBC, including, you know, people I like, like Chuck Todd, um, where they're not also opinion pundits and, you know, some of them may be more fair minded in their opinions than others, but this distinction between news and opinion, which people will bring up, including I, me in the past as this sort of defense, uh, just feels like, uh, you know, like opportunism and nearest weapon to hand stuff and, or nearest shield to hand. And 
And so like on this Chris Cuomo thing, I'm all in favor of like dunking on, on Chris Cuomo and CNN about it, but it's, I can't draw the kind of, you know, passion that I once could have because, uh, you know, no side is pure on this kind of thing anymore. And, you know, and, 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 and I know the people have hated Fox news for a very long time, but it used to be like, I was at a tea party rally event in Ohio when word got out that Sean Hannity was going to appear at it. And Roger Ailes called him back and said, you can't do it. Um, they used to have much stricter rules about that kind of stuff. Um, but that's all gone by the wayside. So is gone by the wayside. This, you know, this, this, this revolving door stuff between, um, administrations and journalism, which was, had eroded on the left for a million years and now has completely gone on the right as well. Um, so, you know, and anyway, back to the constitution stuff, I have, you know, I, I don't like populism. I don't like rabble rousing. I don't like conspiracy theory stuff, but, um, when I hear liberals talk about how sacred the constitution is the only time I ever hear them talk about the sanctity and glories of, of, of the constitution and those kinds of terms are, are when it is a useful way to embarrass Republicans. Um, and I've written about this a bunch of times. It's like, you know, look, I don't believe there's a, any such thing as a living constitution or, you know, a Darwinian constitution as Woodrow Wilson used to say. Um, uh, uh, Antonin Scalia used to talk about an enduring constitution, um, which is a little different. I guess enduring means staying, holding fast over time, I guess. And, um, I used to joke about how I prefer a dead constitution, but that's wrong because I want the constitution to be of live importance, right? Of live relevance. Um, but I don't want it to evolve over time. And to the extent I want it to change over time, the only way to change the constitution, according to my worldview, is to amend it, right? This is like, like, uh, you know, I'm fine with the second amendment as it's written pretty much. But, um, if I were, uh, if I thought I could get away with it, right. If somehow I could organize a campaign and I were a hardcore gun controller or a hardcore, um, uh, second amendment rights guy. And I'm much closer to a hardcore second amendment rights guy. Maybe I'm not, I'm not Charlie cook, but, um, uh, but I believe, you know, I believe in an individual right to bear arms and, um, and all that. But if I were, if I were really, really concerned about gun policy in America, the way a lot of people on one side of the issue are or the other, and I thought I could get away with it, I would amend the constitution to clarify what the second amendment means. You know, if, 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 if I could get away with it and I were an NRA type, I would say, I would rewrite it to say there is an individual right to self-defense and, um, which includes the possession of firearms, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you come up with the exact right language, but I would, cause I, it, that, that's, that's the position that the gun rights people believe the second amendment upholds and they have to spend enormous amounts of time and energy arguing about why the way the second amendment is currently worded means that and you know what does well regulated militia mean you know all that stuff and if i were a hardcore gun grabber type i would totally want to 
amend the Constitution to change the change the wording of the Second Amendment, maybe even repeal the Second Amendment. Um, and I think America would probably be in a better place if we could get. Uh, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't want to see the Second Amendment repealed, but uh, clarity about the meaning of the Second Amendment to stop endless fights over all this stuff um, is an attractive idea to me. But the only way I'm in, I would be in favor of stopping those endless fights is not with some court coming up with some new meaning that they breathe into the Second Amendment. It's by a constitutionally delegated and delineated process by which we change the text of the Constitution. And I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I have gone on riffs about how I'm against the living constitution to certain kinds of audiences. Like, um, uh, it's, it's never conservative audiences, but when I speak to sort of more liberal elite, um, uh, kind of audiences, you know, um, where it's a more diverse crowd, I don't mean racially, I just mean sort of ideologically, or it's a crowd that's more like, you know, some like a bunch of parents who are in a room when I'm talking to to students for something, that kind of thing. Anyway, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and, or during the Q and a said, look, if the constitution didn't change, we wouldn't have women's rights. If the constitution didn't, if we didn't have a living constitution. Um, we would still have slavery or, you know, whatever. And it's, it's like they've been taught in school that the 13th and 14th, you know, amendments don't exist or that the, you know, or that women were granted the vote, what is it, 19th amendment? Um, you know, that, that the big important changes that have been made to the constitution were not breathed into it by nine, you know, robed priests. They were written into it by legislatures and the American people through a long and, 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 and arduous process. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And it's supposed to be hard in part so that everyone does their due diligence and has their arguments and hammers out their disagreements in ways that at the end of the process, everyone has buy-in. And so I have never really had a problem. I've had a problem with specific proposed amendments, but I've never had a problem with the idea of trying to amend the constitution. Um, um, Again, I think some proposed amendments are nuts, but like if you believe the constitution is wrong on something or silent on something or unclear on something, the only way you're going to get it to speak to things legitimately isn't by getting the judges you want on the Supreme court. It's by changing the text. And that's what the pro amendment process is for. And yet whenever for the last, for my entire time in Washington, whenever Republicans have tried to amend the constitution, a, a you know, um, pro-life amendment, a balanced budget amendment, uh, um, uh, same-sex marriage ban, you know, all these things, which you can disagree. And I, I do to one extent or another with some of them, uh, you can disagree with the, the ideas behind the amendments, but, um, what drives me crazy is you always get someone like Pat Leahy or Barbara Boxer, um, who or Barack Obama, who suddenly start talking about the genius and wisdom of the founding fathers. And we shouldn't tinker or tamper with the intricate design that they came up with to the constitution that 
their genius lives on throughout the generations and for all time. And who are we but pale shadows of they to, to muck with their business today by introducing partisan politics into the glorious majesty, the cathedral of parchment that is the Constitution. And then, you know, I don't know, a month later, a month earlier, uh, a Democratic president proposes some uh, nominee for the Supreme Court who totally believes in breathing new life and reading into the Constitution, whatever they want to find there. And they're, they're fine with it. And, um, and that kind of thing kind of just, it, it, it drives me nuts. Um, this, uh, you know, this reverence for the constitution when it's convenient and utter disregard for the constitution when it's not. And one of the things that I always relied upon Republicans for was even if some of them didn't really mean it, there was such a coherent, well-formulated, well-articulated embedded in tradition and custom and expectations of the voters understanding that the constitution is, is the closest we get to something sacred and sort of a, a secular system of government and that it deserves reverence and all that. And that all got thrown out the window with, uh, the end of the Trump presidency. Um, I no longer believe that any of these people, or I shouldn't say any, I don't, I no longer believe that most of these people who have pronounced most emphatically on the glories and wonders of the constitution, give a rat's ass about it. They were saying it because they thought their audiences want to hear it. They thought voters and funders wanted to hear it. And now that they've concluded through focus groups or whatever, that those people don't want to hear it anymore. They don't say it anymore. Ted Cruz, you know, was in favor of all those games with the electors. Uh, Josh Hawley, longtime lawyer, longtime serious, you know, what was the attorney general? Um, you know, sort of golden boy of the legal movement doesn't care about that stuff anymore. J.D. Vance, you know, former clerk and serious lawyer doesn't care about that stuff anymore. And he, and he, he brags about it. And, um, and so I just, I kind of lost my eagerness to pick up a cudgel and defend a team. I'll still have the eagerness to defend the ideas, which I'm trying to do right now. And I try to do on here all the time. But there's just something in the, in the writing process and in the punditry process that makes you more detached and aloof from some of these fights, particularly when they manifest themselves on, you know, on places like Twitter where the, there's a certain subset of right-wing, you know, uh, climbers and strivers and, and, and professional um, trolls is that you the way you police your side is um, by condemning them or mocking them for insufficient ardor in their hatred for the other side. And that is supposed to be a fatal moral um, or, or characterological flaw um, that if you're not as much of an ass towards the other side as they are, um, then your people on your, the, the, the policers of this stuff get to be even greater asses towards you. And these are, you know, I have this natural sort of contrarian thing in me about how I don't respond well to that kind of bullying. And it makes me want to fight, f join ranks with these people even less. Um, I I'm not going to name names, you know, about all this because that's part of what their strategy is. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's punching up. Um, 
Sometimes it's just trying to prove that they got under your skin. Um, sometimes it's like showing off for their crowd about how brave they are or whatever. And I just, I, f I see no reason to give them, give them what they want. Um, I just find it a really depressing tendency on the right. Where to go from here? Oh, so let's see. Yeah. So, I mean, just since we're on this theme and this is what's in my head this morning, um, um, probably the best example of why I get so disappointed with Republicans these days is their reactions to the January six commission stuff. Um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll have new and fresher disappointments to look forward to in the days and weeks ahead. <coughs> but, you know, the, I was talking to, uh, Guy Benson on his radio show about this the other day. Um, the, you know, I, and I've, I think I've talked about this a bunch here. You know, I, I tried to explain to my daughter all the time that there's a huge difference between an explanation and an excuse. I, um, um, an explanation just is an explanation. It tells you why something happened or why you did something, but it is not necessarily, um, a justification for it or, um, an excuse. Right. And so I get as a matter of punditry, and this is the thing that drives me crazy about the, this kind of thing is that you'll often hear people on TV on left and the right explaining what someone is doing as if it's an excuse. And there are these weird sort of rhetorical tells that you'll get and say, well, you know, what you need to understand is, is that Nancy Pelosi needs to blah, 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 blah. And, uh, to which I say, no, I, I understand that. I just think it's wrong. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, and so with this, with this January 6th commission stuff, you've got, uh, um, people all over the place explaining how, you know, this will be, uh, diversion from, uh, Mitch McConnell and and Kevin McCarthy's attempts to do well in the 2022 midterms. Some people talk about how Kevin McCarthy needs to avoid testifying because this stuff will be damaging to him because of his role in the, um, you know, that he played that day or the things that he was privy to or whatever. We don't really know. And part of the reasons of having a commission or an inquiry is to find out and and I agree with all those explanations. I just don't think they're excuses. And the biggest problem, and I guess I talked to Garrity about this too, is the biggest problem is the politicians themselves have, you know, they understand that giving the real explanation is not very uh, high-minded or persuasive. Although it's starting, if you read, uh, Haley Bird has this wonderful piece where she talked to some 20 senator Republican senators about the commission. And a lot of them are just flat out, you know, flat out will essentially say it is that, look, this will be bad for Republicans. So we don't want to do it. But for the most part, Republicans don't want to give an honest answer. I mean, a truly honest answer, which is that this will make us look bad. It'll make Donald Trump angry. It'll make Donald Trump's voters angry. And so we're not going to do it for rank political partisan cover your ass cynical reasons. 
And that's the explanation for it. I mean, and, and you know, the, the, it varies from personality to personality, but as a, as a summary of where the, uh, why the Republicans are throwing the commission under the bus, that's it. Full stop. There's nothing high-minded to it whatsoever. Seriously, nothing high-minded, nothing principled to it at all. It is simply craven, nakedly cynical politics. And there are people who think that's fine because that's what politics is about and yada, yada, yada. And those kinds of people exist on both sides of the aisle. And if that's your position, sort of like, you know, the, the, the dark side guys who admit who they are, that's great. And, you know, and the world has needs for those people. There are, you know, you need political cutthroats who just see things as, you know, these uh, inside the beltway knife fights and it's, you know, Chicago way politics and, and, and you're a naive waif if you bring anything else into it. And I, some of those people are my friends and they're interesting to talk to. Uh, that was sort of who Dick Morris was. Um, Dick Morris, who I think is just one of the most repugnant people I have ever spent um, a significant amount of time with or around. Um, and he really represents sort of the worst. I mean, he, you know, uh, Roger Stone's another, but uh, they're, they're different in their own twisted, um, morally crapulent ways. But um, I haven't spent a lot of time around Roger Stone. I spent a lot of time around Dick Morris, and he's a fundamentally repellent human being. And one of the things that makes him really interesting to talk to is he is so, so much of a, I mean, I don't know if sociopath is the right word, but he is so incapable of understanding how he's sort of like Littlefinger from Game of Thrones. He's so incapable of understanding how someone could do something for morally high-minded reasons or for reasons of conscience that uh, he actually has this kind of bizarrely brilliant reptilian way of understanding what other people's core selfish motives are. And so when he's doing analysis of someone like, of like Hillary Clinton, I'm not saying Hillary Clinton has no principles or ideals, but how those guys practice politics is they think that once they get power, that's when you bring your ideals into it. And until then you do whatever you want, whatever you can to get power. So, but anyway, so when he's like doing analysis of rank, power politics stuff he's really he can be really insightful precisely because he lacks anything like a human conscience or um empathy or soul and if you know there's that great speech by Littlefinger about how when he's trying to figure out why someone is doing something he um thinks about what that person wants most in the world um, in terms of their base selfish desires. And then he asks if their behavior comports with, um, that goal. And Dick Morris was one of those kinds of people. Um, I don't, I say was just cause I hadn't seen him around anymore. Um, I assume he's, he, he, you know, he's alive. I don't know. I don't mean to be, if he, if he recently stopped being alive, my apologies for speaking ill of the dead. So, but I have no idea and I don't, I, I, don't take any of it back. Um, uh, but anyway, where, how did I get onto Dick Morris? Um, 
Um, oh, right. So the nine, the, the, the January 6th commission stuff, right? So the, the Republicans can't give the honest answer, the truthful answer to why they're doing this. And so they throw up a thousand ridiculous arguments about why they're doing this. And Haley has the latest iteration of them in her, in her, um, her newsletter, uh, about how it would be partisan, how it would be, it's rigged against the Republicans, all this kind of stuff. And of course it's not anymore. The original version that Pelosi pushed was rigged and was wildly partisan, but the actual deal that the Republicans and the Democrats worked out in the house for the house legislation is, uh, it's eminently fair equals number of Republicans and Democrats. You need, um, a bipartisan vote to get for subpoenas. It's a totally fair organizing structure to the extent that you can have a fair organizing structure for, for these kinds of things. And this is precisely what the Republicans wanted for the most part. And, um, in terms of the structure of it and, uh, and yet you have all of these Republican senators pretending or sincerely still believing that it's not that because they haven't read the bill and they don't care. And they're just looking to come up with serviceable excuses for doing what McConnell or um, Trump want and, um, and getting right with their um, primary voters. And, and that's it. And, and so some of the arguments are just flatly embarrassing and, you know, I think fundamentally evil. And I, and I mean that kind of seriously. If you can, if you have seen the videos of what happened on January 6th and know the lies and the manipulations that led to it and then say it was no different than any normal uh, tourist visit, then you're doing something evil there. You're doing something on uh, a sort of Soviet level, um, you know, third Reich level propaganda because that's just a lie and you know, it's a lie and you're doing it. And a lot of the people who, who want to hear it know it's a lie, but they want the lie and the stuff that, you know, Ron Johnson has said and, you know, and the people who claim that this was Antifa or BLM and all that kind of stuff, that is, that is grotesque propaganda and it's shameful. Um, and it leaves me like not wanting to lift a finger to defend Republicans about, about anything. And, um, look, I'm open to arguments, about why we shouldn't should or shouldn't have that commission? I think we should. I think it's obvious that we should. Um, but if you're going to vote against it as, you know, even Mike Gallagher, which really makes me sad did, um, if you're going to vote against it, that's one thing. Own the reason why you're voting against it and be honest about it. Don't like this guy from Georgia or you know, some of these other people or Louis Gomer or Paul Gosar spin truly evil and hateful lies that make the country a worse place to justify your BS vote. And, um, sort of like my disgust with the, um, I wonder if you guys can hear my dogs up there. Um, my disgust with the GOP about all of this is, is, is pretty powerful. So what else should we talk about? Um, oh, so I don't know if people liked that anti-Semitism, you know, uh, diatribe is the wrong word. For all I know, people thought it was a 
turgid lecture and stop listening after five minutes. I honestly, I, I don't know. Um, but, um, one point that there are a bunch of points I left out that I wish I had clarified. I, I think I said some stuff about, um, that I, I didn't close the circle on Karl Marx. The point was, was that he was the grandson of a rabbi, his father for purely, for, for purely professional reasons, uh, converted to Lutheranism. Um, and then, uh, Carl was essentially, I mean, he was, I was, he was born Lutheran, but he was essentially a self-hating Jew. And I think he hated his father's conversion because it was for the wrong reasons. And that's one of the reasons what I made him an atheist. So he both had a sort of a self-hating Jew thing and a hating of religion thing and a hating of bourgeois morality that or the bourgeois culture that he thought forced his father to abandon his heritage um for uh professional reasons because it was difficult to be a jewish lawyer if you really wanted to be successful out you know it, it, at the time it was it was done for his if my recollection is right his father did it you know to for career advancement purposes um i also didn't get into the history of the term anti-semitism which um, it's not super relevant, but a lot of people don't know this. The, um, you know, every now and then for all I know, I, I don't want to ascribe words to Rashida Tlaib that she has not offered, but this is a, you all, so I don't know if she said this, but it is something you hear from, um, Arab and Palestinian, uh, anti-Israel people quite often. Once you start paying attention to it, they'll say, and it goes, it goes way back. And they'll say something along the lines of, I can't be anti-Semitic, I'm a Semite, right? And the point being is that Jews aren't the only Semitic peoples, it's Arabs are too, and blah, 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 blah. And it is a classic example of being technically correct and fundamentally dishonest, um, both in the context of the people who say it and, you know, in the here and now and throughout the history of the meaning of the term. The term, um, I'd have to go back and look it up. I'm pretty sure it's Wilhelm Marr. He may not have coined it. it that might have been this guy, Tritsky, a historian, who was an anti-Semitic German historian. Uh, but this guy, Wilhelm Marr, is the guy who popularized it in some tracts um, you know, that were sort of precursors of future Nazi anti-Semitism, but were done, you know, I think, in the earlier in the 20th century if not the end of the 19th century, I probably should just go look this up to refresh my memory. But anyway, um, the term anti-Semitism was created as a euphemism for European Jews. Um, um, The, it was, that was always the intended meaning for it was that it was about the, the Semites who had infiltrated uh, European soil that lived amongst us as, um, you know, dangerous others within and parasites and yada, yada, yada. And it was never about Arabs and the, the reason they came up with the term was, uh, cause it sounded, it was like a pseudoscientific term. It was, it tried to, you know, this was at the time when biological racism was really coming online and and 
the old form of Jew hatred was seen as part of that bygone era, that fading era of religious intolerance. And um, the, the new Jew haters wanted to distinguish themselves from that, those old arguments and say, no, 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 those guys had it wrong. It wasn't because of, you know, you know, you know, the old Testament or their belief in, you know, or because they won't eat pork or because they're money lenders. It has to do with their actual race. Their, you know, their, their biological essence is different than ours. They're subhuman or they're anti-human or they're this, they're that. And they brought in the pseudoscientific language of, of, of biological racism and to make it all sound so much more serious. And that's where anti-Semitism essentially come as a term comes from. And, uh, I personally think it, I mean, we're stuck with it. There's no reason to spend a lot of time and energy getting rid of it. Um, I always did love Charles, my friend, Charles Krauthammer's argument. He wrote a great piece for the, um, standard years ago about why we should stop calling Jews, Jews and go back to Hebrew. Um, and I, I think that's sort of a lost cause, but I wouldn't be opposed to it. I think it's kind of cool. Um, and I ought for similar reasons, I think it would be kind of cool if we could just call it Jew hatred or something like that. But, um, you know, anti-Semitism is the word we've got. And there's an enormous amount of that stuff in the history of Judaism, on which I am by no means an expert. I mean, I, I, I go in and out of this anti-Semitic stuff because I did so much stuff on intellectual history and socialism and fascism and all that kind of stuff. And it's very difficult to get into all that without reading up on the history of anti-Semitism. But I am by no means an expert on the history of anti-Semitism or of Judaism by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, John Podoritz probably has forgotten more about Judaism than I will, or Tevi Troy for that matter, than I will ever know. Um, but um, there is this sort of fascinating uh, word stuff, <laughs> to be blunt about it, when it comes to Jews and Judaism and all that. You know, first of all, there's this weird um, tendency. You know, there's this weird decision that comes sort of post-Holocaust, more in like the 60s and 70s, to stop saying you're a Jew and say you're Jewish, which is kind of weird. I mean, there is that TV show Black-ish, um, which kind of gets at this. But for the most part, it's, it's a weird kind of twist. And it's also sort of like, you know, the, the changing of Israel's name to Palestine by... Um, I can't, I forget the Roman emperor was another one of these word games, but the Jew versus Jewish thing has always been sort of fascinating to me. I wrote a column about this 20 years ago. There was a report, um, which I've never seen sort of referenced again, but there was someone in a book and maybe it's completely untrue. The fact that it's never been brought up again makes me think that maybe it was untrue. Um, but there was a report that early in her career, Hillary Clinton had, had dressed down somebody in some law office or something calling him a Jew bastard. And I'd have to go back and look to see how much credence I gave the actual report, but that wasn't what the column was on. The column was on how weird it is to say, like, if I call you, if I say, Oh, you Jew, there's a negative connotation to it. But if I say, Oh, you're Jewish, 
there isn't a negative connotation to it. And there's just a lot of weird stuff built up into that in terms of the, um, the politics and, and frequency and of, of, uh, language that I, I kind of find fascinating. And there's a long history to it, which I've, I've sort of forgot for these purposes. So maybe I should just, um, you know, move on from the Jews. Um, or maybe not. So like, I guess there's the theme in the pudding of, of this rambling podcast today has been how, um, uh, I'm, I'm really feeling remnanty these days. Um, which doesn't mean I'm feeling sad. I mean, I don't want to be clear about that. I, I, I made peace with this for the most part. I mean, I have, I have my disappointments and I have my resentments and I have my frustrations like every other human being on the planet. Um, but I'm a pretty happy guy and I have a pretty good life and, um, um, and I got a good family and I got some good dogs, uh, and I've had a pretty good career and I think it's still going well and the dispatch is going well. So I just want to be clear that, you know, when I, when I say I'm feeling remnanty and by which I mean alone, um, I don't mean I'm feeling sorry for myself or anything like that. And I don't think that people out there who, I know there are people out there on the left and the right who disagree with me, but listen to this podcast anyway, um, for reasons I find alternatingly f extremely flattering and fascinating. But, um, um, uh, but I know that there are people cause I get n nice notes from people about how much they appreciate the, the stance that I've taken, that David's taken and, you know, blah, 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 the dispatch, yada, 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 um, over the last five years and how it made them feel like they weren't alone. And I appreciate that. And I'm very honored to have played that role for a lot of people, but, um, I only bring it up because it's like, I worry that sometimes when I talk about the remnant stuff and I talk about how annoyed and frustrated I am with so many of the institutions that I was once, you know, a, um, a very welcome member, um, that people think I'm feeling sorry for myself and I'm, and I'm not. And it occurred to me, you know, it's been a while since I explained where the remnant comes from, like the, the title, the name of this podcast and what the inspiration for it was. Um, and, uh, I know I did this long reading thing yesterday and I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to read you a little bit of something, um, just to explain it for, you know, newer listeners or for older listeners who've forgotten, um, the title of this, the name of this podcast, the remnant comes from fundamentally an essay by Albert J. Nock, who was, if you do the intellectual lineage of conservatism and libertarianism, he is one of the early ancestors. Um, I mean, one of the early sort of prophets, if you want to take the analogy a little crazy. Um, he's not Moses or anything, never mind Abraham. But uh, the blood, you know, the, the family trees between libertarianism and conservatism started sort of like, again, Game of Thrones with the Starks and the Karstarks, you know, these kindred tribes. Um, back in the old days, um, and in the, um, in the age of, uh, the superfluous men, um, some people will get the reference, uh, no one used the word libertarian. They used individualist and the individualist, the individualists and the conservatives were, um, were, were much more closely related than they are these days. And knock was one of the guys who was sort of revered by both on both sides. That's not to say that everything he wrote was great 
people point out all sorts of problems with stuff he wrote. I have problems with some of the stuff he wrote, but as a intellectual figure, I still get a lot out of knock. And, um, anyway, so, uh, Albert J. Knock wrote this piece for the Atlantic, um, in 1936, uh, called Isaiah's job. And I, you know, so this is a nice way to tie it all together is that I've talked about being remnant, being sort of dismayed with the public, with the elites, with the right, with the left. Um, and I also talked about Judaism and here we have a little meditation on a Jewish prophet. And uh, I, by no means am I going to read you the whole thing. We can put a link up to it in the show notes if you want. I think it's a fantastic essay. It's a little weird, but we should set the scene. Knock, and I'll also put up my piece about Knock that I wrote for a National Review like a decade ago. Knock was, um, you know, the politics in 1936 were arguably crazier than they are today. You get a lot of liberal nostalgists for this idea that we were all in it together in the 1930s. You also get it for the 1960s. I remember Howard Dean having this long riff when he was running for president about how great the, the 60s were because we were all in it together. And I just always find it amazing how so many of these nostalgic liberals look back at these periods of legendary civil and political unrest as these times of national unity. I mean, I think it's just such an interesting tell because it reveals what they um, what they really miss is the sense of ascendancy, the sense that, you know, that, that history was on their side and they mistake that for, uh, national unity and fellow feeling and camaraderie and solidarity, which was not present. The 1930s were times of horrible, you know, labor protests, racial strife, lynchings. Um, you had these, uh, um, populist, movements that are very hard for for people today i mean i think they're probably easier today than they were 10 years ago uh to understand and how they they sort of spanned left and right categories in all sorts of ways you know father coughlin um who i should really do a supplemental on uh this guy francis townsend huey long um you had all of these figures who were rabble-rousing populists considered most of the time right-wingers, even though their economic program was avowedly, not avowedly, they didn't claim it was left-wing, but it was left-wing. If you look at the platform for Father Coughlin, who was like, I grew up hearing how he was this right-wing radio priest, and then I start reading up on him, you know, 15 years ago, and you read his actual program, and it is like nationalized industry, um, soak the rich, confiscate wealth, all this kind of stuff. It is decidedly left wing and, um, and to the left of FDR and, uh, by a, by a long stretch in terms of the actual program, but because he was seen as an anti-Semite, well, I shouldn't say seen as an anti-Semite because he was an anti-Semite. Um, and because of the kind of passions that he aroused, a lot of people called him a right winger. And one of the things that makes the 1930s so complicated to understand politically is that um, often what got you labeled a right winger was being critical of FDR and the substance of the criticisms didn't really matter. And then later 
what got you labeled, I and mean, we can talk about this on another podcast, what got you labeled um, a right winger was being insufficiently loyal to some version of communism or socialism, insufficiently um, anti-anti-communist or pro-communist or whatever. And like, so if you go back and you read Ron Radosh's fascinating book, Prophets of the Right, um, where he's allegedly writing these profiles of these, and this was back when Radosh was a pretty radical guy. He's writing these profiles of uh, these major figures of what he called the right. And, you know, one of them was John Dewey. <laughs> and um, I'm trying to think who the other ones were. There was another, like, avowed socialist who was considered a right winger because he didn't subscribe to radical, the radical politics of the left. Maybe Arthur Schlesinger, maybe J.T. Flynn. Anyway, there's, there's, we can talk about all that another time. Um, I just bring it up here is because Nock, Nock, one of the great things about Nock was that he wrote as if, this is what I wrote in the National Review piece, he wrote as if he was one of these like characters from science fiction or literature who was immortal and had seen it all before. And so he, was, he never got too worked up about this side versus that side because, or this brand new idea, or that brand new idea, because he wrote as if he understood that these ideas were actually wildly old. And, um, um, and so he didn't, he did what he didn't like were rabble razzlers. He didn't like populists of any type. And, um, and he really didn't like statists of any type. You know, there's a, his most famous book is called Our Enemy, the State, um, which I go back and forth about what I think about, um, but it's a great read. So anyway, that's the setup. That's the context in which he's writing. Um, he, uh, I'll read you, like, this is like the third, fourth paragraph of the, uh, of the thing, is I don't need to give you the whole setup. Um, he's talking, he's basically... Um, explaining why he's about to write about the, um, the prophet Isaiah and about the story from the Bible, the prophet Isaiah. And he writes, it occurred to me then that this story is much worth recalling just now when so many wise men and soothsayers appear to be burdened with a message to the masses. Dr. Townsend has a message. Father Coughlin has one, Mr. Upton Sinclair, Mr. Lippman, Mr. Chase and the planned economy brethren, Mr. Tugwell, and the New Dealers, Mr. Smith, and the Liberty, Liberty Leaguers. The list is endless. I cannot remember a time when so many energumens, I know the word, I just don't know how to, never, I've never, it's one of these words I've never said out loud. Energumens were so vastly, variously proclaiming the word to the multitude and telling them, what they must do to be saved. And I'll take a pause here to explain what that word is. It's energumen, E-N-E-R-G-U-M-E-N. And it's a, like a person who's believed to be possessed by a devil or a spirit. Um, okay, back to the text. This being so, it occurred to me, as I say, that the story of Isaiah might have something in it to steady and compose the human spirit until this tyranny of windiness is overpassed. Tyranny of windiness is a wonderful word, phrase. I shall paraphrase the story in our common speech, since it has to be pieced out from various sources. 
And in as much as respectable scholars have thought fit to put out a whole new version of the Bible in the American vernacular, I shall take shelter behind them, if need be, against the charge of dealing irreverently with the sacred scriptures. The prophet's career began at the end of King Uzziah's reign, say about 740 BC. This reign was uncommonly long, almost half a century, and apparently prosperous. It was one of those prosperous reigns, however, like the reign of Marcus Aurelius at Rome or the administration of Eubulus at Athens or of Mr. Coolidge at Washington, where at the end the prosperity suddenly peters out and things go by the board with a resounding crash. In the year of Uzziah's death, the Lord commissioned the prophet to go out and warn the people of the wrath to come. Quote, tell them what a worthless lot they are, he said. Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep on giving it to them. I suppose perhaps I ought to tell you, God added, that it won't do any good. The official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on in their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction, and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life, unquote, or God said. Isaiah had been very willing to take on the job. In fact, he had asked for it, but the prospect put a new face on the situation. It raised the obvious question, why? If all that were so, if the enterprise were to be a failure from the start, was there any sense in starting at it at all? Ah, the Lord said, you do not get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, each one rubbing along as best he can. They need to be encouraged and braced up because when everything has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant, so be off now and set about it. Apparently then, if the Lord's word is good for anything, I do not offer an opinion about that, the only element in Judean society that was particularly worth bothering about was the remnant. Isaiah seems finally to have got it through his head that this was the case, that nothing was to be expected from the masses, but that if anything substantial were ever to be done in Judea, the remnant would have to do it. This is a very striking and suggestive idea, but before going on to explore it, we need to be quite clear about our terms. What do we mean by the masses and what by the remnant? Again, this is the last graph I'll read from him. As the word masses is commonly used, it suggests agglomerations of poor and underprivileged people, laboring people, proletarians. And it means nothing like that. It means simply the majority. The mass man is one who has neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the human life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are called collectively 
the masses. The line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is set invariably by, the, by quality, not by circumstance. The remnant are those who by force of intellect are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able, at least measurably, to cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. Now, obviously, I got quibbles. I understand other people have quibbles about all, all of that. But I think, and nor do I consider myself a preacher by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I think that you can say that's like some of that stuff is too derogatory towards the masses who, um, I think at least even in the terms that he describes them, um, are really repositories of sort of basic decency in this country that gets overlooked, um, because we tend to confuse political and ideological allegiance with, uh, you know, moral character. Um, but as a general proposition, and again, the article goes on for pages and pages. Um, that's what the remnant means. You know, the remnant means, um, it's a bunch of people who are left behind from what, um, was once considered the right way of thinking about things. And if, if we're lucky or if we're successful, it will also be the means of renewal, um, for, for reclaiming those things and building them back up. And, um, I don't make super hard and fast distinctions between who's in the remnant and who's not in the remnant, because if you go on to read knock, a lot of the people who are in the remnant don't know that they're in the remnant. Um, a lot of the people who aren't in the remnant can still be good and decent people. Um, but they need guidance ultimately from the people who are in the remnant. And, and also, you know, I, I, if you read my piece in NR about knock, I have my disagreements with, with a kind of fatalism that he has. Um, you know, my friend Yuval Levin likes to say that people should stop talking about being optimistic and start talking about being hopeful because at least hopeful gives us a little agency in how to make things better. Um, in a, in a role to make things better. Optimism makes it sound like you're just sitting on the sidelines and events that you have no control of or, or role in, um, will just either transpire in an optimist, a way that fulfills optimism or ratifies optimism or in a way that it doesn't. And I believe in that. And I think that, um, you know, there is a role for making arguments and persuading people and that's sort of what the point of the race of the remnant is, you know, I, I, my wife just got back from being out of town for a week and I've had to take care of her starter dough and it's kind of fun. It's kind of like a family pet where I got to feed it twice a day. And, um, I really want to do all sorts of little kid experiments with it, but I, I know that I will probably kill it and, and that will make my wife angry. And I dearly believe in the proposition of a, of happy life, happy wife. Um, and, uh, so I do as I'm instructed with it, but the remnant in a lot of ways is the starter dough. It's not a bunch of people who are just, you know, out there not participating, not doing anything. There are a bunch of people who understand that sometimes you got to ride out the crazy 
um, and that there may be in the short term things that you can't do to change the course of the crazy and you got to let it burn itself out. Um, but there are also the people who keep an eye on the idea that once this craziness is over, um, it's going to be time to get busy and it's going to be time to, to, to try and fix things and you do what you can, where you can. And everybody has, you know, I mean, most of the listeners to this are not in politics, although a lot of people are, um, you know, I know there, there are senators and congressmen who listen to this podcast and, you know, part of the decision you have to make is, you know, where do you steer things in the right direction? Because it's just simply the right thing to do. And where do you say, let me, you know, uh, keep my powder dry for a, ba- a more important battle that, you know, come down the road. Um, and for politicians, that's fine because that's, that is the nature of politicians, even in, even in the best of times, even in the times of, uh, at the, at the, the, the high watermark of King Uzziah's reign, politicians were like that. Um, and for the rest of us, you know, we got lives to live. We got kids to raise, we got job careers to pursue. We have, you know, hobbies and interests and faiths to explore. And, um, and I've always believed that you make the biggest difference in life where you're an, you're actually physically present. You know, I always used to tell audiences when audiences actually cared about liberty, rightly understood, you know, the fight for liberty begins in your own backyard. Um, you know, turning into this abstract struggle for what other people, for what gladiators are going to do on your behalf on cable TV or in Congress, a thousand miles from where you live is basically outsourcing your responsibilities as a citizen. And you've got to fight for the right to party or whatever you got to fight for the right for for the right things for liberty and the other important things where you live and um um and i find this i just find this an incredibly comforting way to think about things is is just to feel like you know i don't think there's a you know there's perfect symmetry between both sides i don't think that on every issue um uh one side has a, a better position than the other side in terms of these stupid arguments, obviously on policy stuff, you know, I, I think there are clearly right policies and wrong policies, but on so much of this, you know, gassy culture war kind of stuff and the hypocrisy hunting stuff and let's, you know, police the people who are, um, you know, you know, outrageously civil to the people that they disagree with um, stuff. I think sometimes Democrats are worse. Sometimes Republicans are worse. Sometimes the left is worse. Sometimes the right is worse. Um, sometimes it matters what people are talking about. You know, I think Antifa and BLM and the violent riots of the Portland and Milwaukee were terrible. And the people responsible for, you know, if you, if you set fire to a footlocker, you should go to jail. And I don't care how righteously angry you are. And people who condone that stuff, um, or talk about like how, like I remember the mayor of Baltimore once talked about how, you know, people need the freedom to riot or words to that effect. There is no freedom to riot. And, and I don't for a moment want to sound like I'm soft on that stuff because I'm not, but I do think it's categorically different than spending months undermining faith and confidence in, in American democracy 
filling people with the expectation that if you lose, um, it's because the election was stolen, allowing surrogates to say that um, this was an international conspiracy um, of some grand scale and getting mad at surrogates or getting mad at members of your party who wouldn't say that stuff or um, about saying basically on election night that you won when you lost um, and saying that the election was stolen and then being shocked that when you invite a mass crowd down to Washington that that violence and mayhem ensued and then pretending that the violence and mayhem did not ensue or that the people who were doing it weren't your people um, and then continuing to spread the lies that um, that brought these people to Washington to literally try and steal an election by interrupting a constitutionally required and legitimate process. Um, that's different. And, you know, I, if I have to hear one more Republican think that like they've won an argument, if they can prove this wasn't an quote unquote insurrection, um, I don't give a rat's ass about whether or not it fits the definition of insurrection or not. What it was, was evil and its lasting effects are evil. And it was fundamentally anti-American, anti-democratic, unconstitutional, and an enormous number of people who have spent their careers getting rich or getting elected, talking about their love of the Constitution and love of this country, exploited it, apologized for it, or fueled it. And um, I see no reason why um, I should have any sense of obligation or duty um, to celebrate those people or to uh, forgive or forget any of that. And if that puts me and a lot of the listeners of this podcast in a remnant for a while longer, fine. But I, I think keeping remembering the truth about this stuff and holding people accountable to it um, matters. And it matters more in a fundamental historical sense than holding people accountable for the evil that they did in Portland or Seattle or wherever. And that attitude puts me squarely in the middle of the remnant. And I'm heartened to know that, you know, in aggregate terms, the remnant, it may be small, but in, in, in terms of my own experience, it's really amazingly large. And I like the other people who are in it and I am honored, um, to be amongst them. So I know this was a weird one, but that's just sort of where my head is at. And, uh, I'll see you next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.